Hi, guys. Welcome to the Howard Raised It podcast, the show where we get an inside, unfiltered look at how real entrepreneurs and VCs raise capital for their businesses. I'm your host, Nathan Beckert, and today's episode is with Zach Coleus of Coleus Capital, an early stage venture fund that's invested in dozens of startups, everything from Cruise to Hello Sign to Mudwater and many others. In this episode, we go deep into how he got started angel investing and how he leveraged that into becoming a solo GP venture fund. We also talk about how to get access to good deals, how to be useful, how to do leveraged favors, and much more. If you're tuning into this podcast to learn how to raise capital for your business, I've created a super valuable free welcome package for you. It includes a list of 2,500 investors who don't require a warm intro, plus 200 questions that investors are going to ask you. So this is really going to help you get ready to raise capital. To get access to this, please leave us a nice review in the Apple iTunes store. Hit all the stars, leave a nice comment or two, and then email us at info at foundersuite.com and we will send that to you right away. Last but not least, if you enjoy this conversation and think someone else would too, please share it with them and hit that subscribe button to get all our latest episodes. Thank you. Now sit back and enjoy this chat with Zach. Welcome to How I Raised It, the podcast that goes behind the scenes with entrepreneurs who've raised capital. We uncover the tips, tricks, and techniques they use to get investors to write a check. Strap in and turn it up. Hi, welcome to another episode of How I Raised It, produced by Foundersuite.com. Today I have Zach Coleus of Coleus Capital coming to us from Bernal Heights, San Francisco. How's your day going? Good, man. How are you? Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, I saw you at your dinner a couple of weeks ago. That was fun. I like that you Thanks guys. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Let's start off with what do you do? What is Coleus Capital? What do you say you do around here? Um, yeah, so I'm a, I like to say I'm a washed up entrepreneur. Spent 20 years starting companies, never really had a real job. Um, and then we sold the last one in 2015, which was an ad tech uh, retargeting business. Uh, crazy 10 year journey. Um, and uh, I uh, washed up on the beach that is being a VC. Uh, and so I've been I've been investing in startups ever since. Um, yeah, so I spend all my time running around talking to startups, helping them out, giving them some money, pray for them, pray some more. Just the the startup journey, but on the other side of the other side of the um, the 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 hellscape that is being a startup founder. I like it. Is it easier or more fun? We'll get into a lot more details, but yeah, it- yeah, <laughs> it's it's at least ten times easier, maybe more. Yeah. I have this analogy I love to use that. Um, it's funny. Some, some somebody actually ripped it off and used it on a podcast, word for word. It's like I've been using it for years. But um, like being a startup founder is a lot like being like we've seen the movie The Gladiator with Russell Crowe. Um, so yeah. there's a scene in the movie very early where he's captured and it's him and a bunch of slaves. They're in the the base of um, the arena and um, they're about to be pushed out to the middle where they know they're going to get chopped in half, which is like a fucking terrifying thought, right? Like imagine you're in front of a door and on the other side of it, you know that there's a pissed off dude with a battle axe. So, you know, like grab whatever weapons you can grab and like, you know, you go out in the middle and being an entrepreneur is sort of like this. Like you go, you get your team, whatever you can get, you, you get whatever resources you have and you go out in the middle of the arena and you fight and you sweat and you bleed until you die, which is what happens to almost everybody, or you exit. Um, and it's like, you can claim you sleep as an entrepreneur, but like in reality, you don't. You just you just fight and sweat and bleed. And the thing is, is that like every problem you solve, you immediately escalate to the next harder problem. So it's just like, and it's a rocket ship ride into the walls of whatever your own personal incompetence is. So all the things you're good at, 
you quickly beat the bad guys, you move forward, then they send two, you beat them, they send four, you beat that, and like suddenly they're shooting arrows at you and there's tigers on chains and it's, it's a never ending escalation of the problem set. Um, and being a VC is literally like being one of the douchebags in the stands who bets on which glider is gonna win and which one's gonna die. Like it's, it's so much easier. And, you know, I used to be an entrepreneur, so I love to run in the middle and help out a little bit and be like, hey, let me help. Uh, pretend like I still know how to be an entrepreneur, but like, you know, pretty quickly I'm like, ah, my beer's getting warm. I got to go back. Like, yeah, good luck with this. Um, so yeah, being, being a VC is a much, much, much easier job. Less fun, but easier. That is a great metaphor. I love that metaphor. I have never heard that one before. So whoever borrowed it from you hasn't made its way into my orbit, but good, I love that. Good, good. <laughs> that, guy, that, that guy's a jerk. Okay. Uh, no, that's yeah. good though. Um, Okay, well, let's let's go back to kind of the chronology. So you you had your startup, you exited, and then you just, I, I guess my question really is, how did you become a VC? But I think uh, let's pick it up after exiting. You started doing some angel investments, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, so what happened was, is that I had been, um, I'd always been very active helping other founders raise money because I enjoy, I enjoy the fundraising process. And like, it's the ultimate sort of win-win. Like if you can introduce a founder to a VC and the VC funds the deal, then everybody owes you a favor. The entrepreneur owes you a favor. The VC owes you a favor. It's like, it's a, it's a beautiful place to sort of sit and add a lot of value connecting the right people. And so I'd, I'd helped a lot of people raising money in my years and advised a bunch of companies and just sort of been active with other folks. And um, there was a company that I had been working with called Branch Metrics, and I had introduced them to their seed investors. And then um, MEA was leading the A, and I, this was like January 15. And I was like, hey, you guys mind if I put this up on this new AngelList thing and syndicate it? Which is like, at that point, it was very, very new. And they were like, sure, knock yourself out. So, you know, I wrote the memo and put it up. And 24 hours later, I had raised, you know, a couple hundred grand. And I'm like, look at that. I'm an investor now. I mean, I, yeah, it was total happenstance. And so this is while I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life. We just sold the company and like, you know, I wasn't going to be involved with the company going forward. So I was like, I didn't know what the fuck to do. I was like, I, yeah. Um, so that year while I kind of got my stuff figured out, I wandered around and made a couple other investments and one of them was cruise. Uh, so when the cruise exit happened, everyone suddenly thought I knew what I was doing and, and the momentum started and angelist momentum started. And so all these feedback loops started kicking in and uh it just started growing really really rapidly and um like a long story short you know now i, I run one of the biggest syndicates on angelist and then i've raised a number of funds and then i work with a bunch of uh lps we have spvs together and so there's a bunch of capital now that i that i manage but it all started with just sort of stumbling into it and yeah yeah, yeah. i like it were you so let's let's keep going because i think it's always interesting to to hear how people end up you know at, in the vc chair but yeah. you were, were you doing direct investments with your own capital or were you mainly putting together syndicates, getting other, other wealthy folks to basically back and you're, you're taking your, uh, your carrier or what? Yeah. yeah. I've never invested my own capital. I never had much capital to, to play with. And, um, you know, uh, that in retrospect, you know, I was there at the very beginning of Uber, Airbnb, Dropbox. So like 10 K checks would have done some pretty awesome things there, but, but I didn't. I wasn't doing that. So no, I was all other people's capital. I put in a little bit of my own into each deal, but effectively at other people's capital um, via the syndicates and then eventually um, via the funds. Um, I have Now I have my own capital, much more of my own capital at risk. But um, in the beginning, it was like, I would literally write checks for $1,000 per deal. Like, And I would, I would send a note to my LPs. I'd be like, hey, uh, 
Uh, I know this looks weird, but I actually don't have a lot of cash. Like, and I'm still very illiquid. Like 90, 90 something percent of my net worth is in startup equity. So illiquid, yeah. and highly volatile, which is just fun. Interesting. If you don't mind, for anyone who's not familiar, how does the syndicate model work? So basically you find, let's say you find a company, Acme, you know, Acme SaaS, whatever it is. Yeah. And you, you want, you talk, talk us through it in real simple terms, how you yeah. put together a syndicate. Yeah. So on AngelList, which is where I do most of my syndications, um, every, anyone who wants to, who's a accredited investor, or you can join AngelList, you sign up there, you verify that you, you know, are, are uh, eligible to invest in startups. Um, and then you get to see all of these syndicate leads, people like me, and you just click the buttons and you back them, quote unquote. In reality, that just means you get on the email list and you get to see the deals. And there's no obligation, no commitment. It's very much like you're just along for the ride. Uh, there's 5,000 people in my sort of list. Um, and then when I find a deal that I want to invest in, um, what I'll do is I'll carve out an allocation that I'm going to put up on AngelList. So call it a 200K uh, allocation. And then I'll write a memo. This is the deal. This is the terms. This is the lead. This is all the, the reasons why I like the company. And then I'll share that with those people. And then those people individually can choose to participate or not. Um, you know, 5,000 people on the list, you know, on a regular basis, we get maybe 50, 60 of them, sometimes 100, but usually like 25 to 50 people will opt in. They'll put their capital into the SPV that makes the investment into the company. And then I get um, uh, carry on that. So if we sell the company and make them more money than they invested, then basically then I get a, um, uh, I get a carry check out of that, which is just nice. So. Yeah. And is it, like two percent, like a typical venture. So that, that would be a, a normally two percent fee. Um, it was a fifteen percent carry. Um, normally, you'd have a twenty percent carry, um, but in in this case, I take a fifteen percent carry. Got it. Okay. And you're putting in a little little money, whatever it is. Yeah. Or something, yeah. And, and it's essentially that carry is rewarding you for finding the deal and pulling together all these other doing all the work. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of work from from the initial deal flow, sourcing the deal, finding the deal, getting into it, deciding to do it, negotiating, managing it afterwards. I mean, there's there's a lot of work that gets done in the the life cycle of a of an infinitesimal investment or early stage investment. You start doing that, I think you said 2015 ish. Is yep. this still a viable strategy for, let's say, someone just got out of a, a tech firm, they've got some money, yeah. um, should they just start angel investing? And, and maybe they want to become a VC, right? They want to raise yeah. a fund eventually. Should they start doing syndicates or should they just start angel investing directly? So syndicates are, the, the challenge with syndicates is that there's a lot of people who syndicate a lot of deals. So the people who are on there, they see all these deals and they're trying to pick which one to do. And um, the, the challenge is how they figure out which deals to do or not do. And so the real secret is until you've built a track record that, you know, you have big exits and people think they know what you're, you know what you're doing. Uh, the real secret is to do deals that have VC leads. So if Sequoia is leading a deal or NEA is leading a deal or Andreessen or, you know, Benchmark or any of those folks, and you get an allocation alongside them, great. Then people will invest with that in that deal because they trust the VC lead. And so like, for instance, when I first started doing it, you know, I, no one knew me from, from anything, but like my first deals were NEA and then Spark and Rakuten, um, and you know a whole bunch of other top tier firms so people were investing behind the firm less than me if you can get those sorts of allocations into those deals um then you can you can do very well um if you don't have that um it's basically impossible because the noise the, the noise on there is very significant now um yeah 
and that's kind of was the subtext of my question too like is this still a strategy that you can do because angelus is interesting i mean we even raised a little money on angelus back in the day and i don't think you can go on and do it like that like we did it you know it's changed right yeah yeah the self-syndication thing i mean maybe it might happen i don't i don't know i don't i don't sit on the other side of the table in angelus yeah. i don't look at what's happening on there but yeah it's, it's evolved quite a bit um but really at the end of the day it's about the secret is, is getting allocation to deals that have strong leads then you can get other investors to join you in that and then you can get carry on their capital and if you can't do that i mean to someone who again kind of wants to become a vc do you recommend just hey hustling like crazy make lots of intros be paying it forward and writing your 25k check into deals you can get access. yeah i mean it's it's a hustle um yeah. that's one way to do it um you know the other way to do it is just like spend your time trying to figure out how to get access to those allocations um because if you that's once you get those allocations and everything else becomes a lot easier. So even if you're not using AngelList, you can get other people to invest alongside you. Um, yeah, you can you can you can do a lot of interesting stuff. Let's talk on that just for a sec. What are sort of the top three ways to get access to allocations? Obviously, there's 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 multiple ways, but there's one way that really works. Um, it's make friends with founders. If you help founders, like if you're there helping them, if you're making it, like for instance, if you introduce a founder to the VC who invests in the deal early on, that's how I would get a lot of my allocations. Then, you know, they would be pretty, pretty, pretty uncool if they didn't give you an allocation in that deal. Um, uh, if you're there helping them with, you know, hiring, recruiting customers, if you're adding value to the business, then um, then you can get allocation. But there's there's another strategy, which is you go to the VCs and you get the VCs to bring you in on their deals. The problem is, is that everybody tries to do that. And so the only deals they share with anything other than their besties is garbage. So you get a lot mm -hmm. of adverse selection there. So like if they're giving, if you're not a best friend with the VC and they're giving you a deal, most likely they're giving you their crap. Um, and you know that will work out probably not so well. How interesting. Make friends with founders, always a good strategy. Do you, this sounds very mercenary, but when you're making friends with the founder, helping them out, do you contract a little thing? Like if I can get you a lead VC, then you I, I don't do it that way because it that that quid pro quo is just really problematic on many levels. Yeah. Um, I tend to be, sometimes I'll be an advisor and usually, usually what I'll do is when I first meet a founder, I'll help out a little bit. Like, and then I'm like, they're like, then if they want more, they're going to come back for more. And then I'm like, great. You want my help? I need to be an advisor because, like, when what I say is like, look, if you succeed, I want to be happy with you, not bitter that I didn't get to be along for the ride. And um, that's worked out really well for me. I have a, a number of companies that I advise that have had good outcomes, and I'm happy when they get a good outcome. Um, and then I help out, you know, as much as I can as an advisor. Um, but if I'm not doing it as an advisor, I'm always happy to make capital introductions for good companies. So, like, if a company's good, like, legitimately, like, I think that the people that I'm sending it to will be excited that I'm sending it to them. So the VCs are going to be like, this is a good deal. Thank you for sending me this deal. Then, then I'm doing a favor for my friends VC, who are VCs. And I'm always about doing leveraged favors, which is like when I can do something that costs me very little in terms of time and energy, but gets me a lot of like leveraged value, like doing a podcast, right? Talk to you and multiple people hear it. That's leveraged. But like, if I'm just going to like, a lot of people reach out, they're like, hey, I want to pick your mind about whatever. And I'm like, that's not leverage. Like I got like one by one, I got to talk to you. But I'm like, go watch all my podcasts. Like <laughs> right. if, if at that point, then you have some questions, feel free to email me. But like, um, yeah, so leverage favors, yeah. that's everything. I'm always looking for those. Leverage is everything in this business. I like it. Leverage favors is a great phrase. Excellent. All right. I'm going to go back to your story a bit. So you're doing syndicates and then 
at some point you say, I, I want to go raise my own actual proper venture fund. Um, when did that happen? When did that light bulb go off? How many syndicates had you done? I guess you, when did you know you had a track record that you might be able to raise a fund on? So what happened actually kind of happened by happenstance was um, uh, I had done, so the ramp was like a million of syndicates in 15. I think it was like three or four in 16. And then in 17, I got introduced to these guys called Industry Ventures. And they're a big uh, fund to fund, secondary fund. Um, and it was literally the first LP meeting I ever had. And I go in there and I'm kind of just telling them my story. And I wasn't even raised capital. I was just like, this is like, I'm just getting to know, you know, a player in the ecosystem. And sorry, very is, industry, and is industry a VC or an LP? They're both. Okay, okay got it. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're a fund to funds, an LP. Uh, so they invest in lots of, lots and lots of venture funds and they're also a big secondary buyer and okay. they also do investment so it's a multi-billion dollar institutional firm they're like they're probably one of if not the smartest group in the entire valley who sit where they sit in the ecosystem and so at the very end of that um conversation i mentioned i was like oh by the way i had i had written a term sheet to give a bridge to the Hellasan guys who I've been an advisor for many years. And uh, Brad from Foundry found out. He called me up. He's like, hey, do you mind if we make this a B? And I was like, it would be my honor to, you know, if you, you come in and turn my little term sheet into a B, I'd be excited about that. And so I was co-leading this B with the, the the Foundry guys. And I had this big allocation, much bigger than I could fill. And I was like, I was like, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to fill it. <laughs> and the industry guys were like, oh, well, we used to do this thing with Saka where he would find a deal. He would bring it through our committee. We'd we fund it if we liked it. And then we'll give you carry on that. And we can write bigger checks than you can get from your syndicate. And I was like, cool, let's do that. And so we we started working together on that basis uh, in 2017 and then um, deploying capital into a number of other opportunities that, that bigger checks were possible. And it was kind of like it was kind of like a fund on training wheels because their committee was still there. They still looked at the deal. Like I couldn't just do whatever I wanted. And um uh, yeah, we, we kind of built out a track record that way over 2017, 2018. And then I got lucky, Dropbox bought HelloSign. And when that happened, you know, they thought I knew what I was doing and they gave me a lot more rope to go hang myself with. And so it was like that, like at each step of the process for me as a, as an investor, it's been sort of like, try to figure out how to get access to capital to build a track record and then leverage that to more and more and more so that over time the track record accumulates, but I can keep deploying, keep doing the work as opposed to a lot of people kind of do it, I think in a very ass backwards way, which is they're like, oh, I'm going to go raise a fund to go build a track record. And the problem is, is when you go try to convince somebody to give you capital to, to raise a fund, when you don't have a track record, you spend a shitload of time doing that and it's a real pain in the ass. So I've always tried to do it the other way around, which is like, how can I hack the system to find access to capital to build a track record to make it easy to go raise the funds when the time comes? Interesting. Yeah, good stuff. So let's talk about that then. Let's kind of move the the timeline forward to raising that first fund. And uh, how much was it? And then who was involved? Talk about the process of doing that first fund. Yeah, so the first the first one was a very small angel fund on AngelList, um, and it was just a million dollars. And um, you know, uh, a number of folks who were backers of mine on AngelList contributed. Some friends of mine contributed. Um, one of the AngelList sort of like captive funds contributed. Um, that was my first fund, uh, Blind Pool, and uh, I wish that one was bigger. It's like currently that's a We've already, we're 1x on DPI, so we've returned all the capital. We're 10x on TVPI, so like on paper, we're like 
we're, we're going to be in a very good place. And then it's got a bunch of good companies in it, including Mercury. So I think it, I think it will be get as potential to be even 10 times bigger than it is now. So I, I wish that was like a bigger fund than like a little million dollar fund. But, um, but on paper, everyone is very happy with that. Um, that was my first fund. Yeah. Um, and that was just a million dollars in 2017 and 18. Um, and then, uh, so after the, the industry guys basically, uh, they, they, they were like, at one point they were like, we're going to make you an offer you can't refuse. And I was like, sweet, I guess. Yes. And they're like, what we'll do is we'll do a, we'll do two funds with you. Uh, we're, we're the sole, um, the sole LP. Um, and, uh, and I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Let's do that. Um, so we put that in place. Uh, it was a $45 million vehicle, two vehicles. Uh, we put that in place at, at the end of 2019. And I started deploying off of that. And then uh, we pretty quickly realized that that fund was the, the early stage part of that was too small. And so um, in 2021, I went out and raised a proper early stage fund um, with a whole bunch of LPs. Um, and so that's now, so now I basically like I actually run four vehicles that I'm currently deploying off of my early stage main fund, which is $33 million. My rolling fund on AngelList, which anybody can participate in, uh, which is about $4 million a year right now. And then I have a $30 million opportunity vehicle. And then the AngelList Syndicate, I still try to bring in as much as I can um, whenever I can find a deal. Wow. Rolling cool. fund, the Syndicate, the the 2019 fund, which is 45 Yeah, well that, so that's mostly deployed and it's yeah. split into two parts. So the early stage vehicle is deployed. And then right. the um, the opportunity vehicle of that is still, I'm still deploying that. Um, yeah. And then the 2021 was from a, that's, like, that's what I call my main fund, but it's a $33 million early stage vehicle that I raised in 2021. Got it. Interesting. Are these, how do I put it? Synergistic. There are some of your syndicate yep. deals coming and flowing into the, the yes. Yeah, so the way it works is it's very simple rule set. So any early stage series A and earlier deal, my, my main fund and the, and the, and the rolling fund, they must have, um, uh, as much allocation as they can get up to proper, portfolio construction sizing. Um, and so they go first, but then if there's additional allocation, then I can bring in the syndicate and potentially the opportunity fund. And then anything that's series A and later, later deals, B and later, then my then the the early stage funds, they tap out and then it, then it becomes the syndicate and the opportunity vehicle for later stage stuff. Got it, interesting. And are you a solo GP? I think. Yeah, just me. Yeah, yeah I'm the only investment professional. There's, there's a, a great woman who helps me out on back office stuff. Um, finance person and she's she's amazing but um but yeah all the all the investing stuff is just me is that was that by design or did it just sort of happen that way <laughs> or, that's you know. but i think there's real advantages to being a solo um you know it's interesting it's, this is a business where all the money gets made by contrarian non-consensus weird ideas consistently yeah. over and over again and yet the whole industry has sort of like settled on this committee decision-making process because that's kind of how historically they've always done it. And so you have these committees making the pretty shitty decisions in my position, my opinion. And so you, I can counter position against them and do things that they struggle to do, both in terms of speed, in terms of stage, in terms of, you know, type of deals that I'll do. There's a bunch of ways for me to basically like live outside of sort of the traditional VC sort of crowd that all gloms together all the time. Yeah. What, what's the what's the downside of being a solo GP if if there yeah. is one? I mean, you're by yourself, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> as long as you're making good decisions, you're doing great. But if you suddenly start making bad decisions, you got a problem. Uh, no one to blame. <laughs> helpful to have somebody next to you being like, "Yeah, that might be a dumb idea." Uh, on the other hand, some of my really dumb ideas have turned out really well. So, like, 
I, I, I do think there's some value to like um, making idiosyncratic decisions and doing it by yourself often is mo- you end up with more idiosyncrasy than you do when sort of modulation of a, a committee, you know, just that just sort of drives everything to mediocrity oftentimes um, very rarely. And then you, the other problem you have is that the, with these, with these committees is that the interpersonal problems break down all the time. And so these funds are just a mess, a hot mess of interpersonal feuds and disagreements and politics. And so I, I think there's real advantages to being a solo. Yeah. How do I ask this? Touch on the idiosyncrasy. Uh, I can't even pronounce the damn word. The idiosyncratic nature of this and how you give an example of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'll give you an an example. So, um, uh, what year was it? 20, let's say 2018, maybe 2019. Uh, I had been advising these guys. Uh, who were uh, founders of a company doing uh, SDRs as a service? Great team, really hard market, and they're they're they they hit a wall and they they shut the company down. And the designer on the team is like, "Fuck it, I'm going to go at a to paint." And um, you know, he's just wants to take a break, so he goes to go, uh, and he's really into mushroom tea. And mushroom tea is great for you, except it tastes like shit. So really good for you, great way to stop drinking coffee. It's got all these wonderful adaptogenic properties. Like we should all drink it all every day. It's terrible tasting. Uh, and so over there, he gets into the Goa chai tea blending techniques where you add cardamom and keiko and black pepper. And you can, you make there, they do it with chai tea, but um, but he does it with his mushroom tea. So he comes back and he's got this blend he calls, this looks like literally it's a very muddy sort of thing. And um, uh, his friend's like, this is great. You should sell it. Uh, and he's like, okay. So he makes a brand. He puts it up on Shopify. First month, he sells $5,000 for tea. Next month, he sells $10,000 with tea. And so then uh, they reach out, him and his, his his buddy from the last company reach out. They're like, hey, you have to help. And I'm like, I don't know anything about CPG. I don't know anything about tea. I don't know anything about consumer. Oh, yeah, let me help. So I like pinged a bunch of my friends who were CPG people. And they're like, oh, this is the best deal ever. You should do this deal. And I'm like, hey, guys, guys, I don't know shit about CPG or mushroom tea or anything else. <laughs> um, so then the next month, they sell $20,000 with a tea. And uh, they're like, hey, help, 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 help. And I'm like, dude, I'm helping as much as I can, but I'm not useful. Here. The next month, they sell $40,000 in tea. And so you got 100% month of month growth, direct to consumer, super high margin, beautiful product. And they're running out of capital because they're running out of inventory. And I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to do this deal. Why not? Like, here's, here's a 500K check, you know, bought effectively 10% of the company. And I'm sure it'll lose it, but you know, I got enough other positions that like, you know, it's, it's nice to play at the edges. Like the edges are where a lot of interesting stuff happens in this business. And so I was like, you know, uh, go for it. I, I, I think they very well could sell hundred million dollars with the team this, this year, maybe more. I mean, it's, it's called Mudwater. It's great products. They've, they've, they've done fabulously well. It's a great business. And it, it looks like it'll be a great outcome for me. So like, that's a real idiosyncrasy. Like, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've got a bunch of examples like that. It turns out that the decisions that I make at the edges have tended to be where my biggest outcomes are. So like Cruise, self-driving car company, like that was all founder bet. But like, I don't know anything about self-driving cars. Like I'm not an expert in that level of, you know, but the founder's amazing and I've known him for a long time. And I'm like, okay, we'll take a risk here. So I think the edges are where a lot of interesting stuff happens in venture. I would agree with you, although like like we've had thirty thousand startups on Founder Street, and I see twenty eight thousand bad ideas too. So I guess there, how do you decide between oh, the edge 
and yeah. what's just weird and bad but yeah um yeah you have to it has to be both like i think like there i there, i think what's interesting is that like what i'm looking for is things that are weird but viable and sure. that's a hard mix oftentimes they're weird and not viable but like when they're weird and they're viable or they're like they're weird and potentially like one of like so for instance when when they first heard uber travis and i were at a um at a party and you know having a couple beers and he was telling me about the idea they hadn't even launched yet and i was like dude that's gonna be so awesome except i was like but the taxi lobby is gonna fuck you like you're no way you're gonna get through that and like he's like i'm a fighter so we literally argued for like two hours about whether or not he could make it work or not and um it taught me a lesson right which is that like when you see a company that like has the potential to add an incredible amount of value but there's some idiosyncratic reason why you don't think it will work or something that like makes it weird or whatever those are the things you really should lean into like not you should that first like no it won't work because but whenever whenever your brain's like but then you really need to like you need to spend a little more time there um yeah so. interesting did you put money in in uber i, I, I wasn't to... investing at that point no. i mean i mean i I used to play poker with the Airbnb guys, Dropbox guys, like the obviously, you know, um, the Reddit guys. I mean, I, I've all these times I was not investing. I wish I had been. I would have yeah, been. Yeah. Sure. Well, you got Mudwater. I it's funny, I I've got the YouTube ads for Mudwater like constantly in my YouTube stream for whatever reason. Yeah. <laughs> Never tried it, but uh, if you ever want to stop drinking coffee, it's a great solution. Like so. You know, like I use it in the afternoons. I love coffee, but like, you know, come now, I should stop drinking coffee so I can get some sleep tonight. And, you know, I'll have some mud and it just like, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great coffee replacement. And if you want to stop coffee completely or for health reasons, you need to stop drinking coffee. You'll find mud water is a very effective solution for that. Hmm, interesting. Cool. 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 Let's see. What else do I want to touch on here? Maybe let's go into a little bit more on that, raising that $33 million fund. How did you identify LPs, source LPs? talk about the process for herding all the cats all that stuff yeah so my story is not normal um one i had you know by that point in time in 2021 you know i I had six-year track record and you know have have returned tens of millions of dollars to my lps so you know a bunch of big outcomes um so i went into it with a lot of advantages that made it a lot easier and i raised it in 2021 which is like, yeah. I mean, there's never been an easier time to raise capital. So it ended up being, I mean, literally it's kind of a joke amongst my friends about how easy that fundraise was. It, it took three weeks for me to raise that fund all over Zoom, not a single in-person meeting. And it was, I mean, literally I would reach out to my BC buddies being like, hey, here's my deck. Here's my, you know, here's my list of companies and their marks. And uh, who, who should I talk to? And they're like, me, I'm going to, I want to invest in this. And they literally invested without even taking a call. And so it was like 2021, it was, it was an amazing time to raise capital. Um, but I mean, it, I think the lesson was, like I said before, is that like figuring out how to get that track record really made it a lot easier when the time came to raise, because, you know, a lot of times people get tripped up on like, you know, being good at other things and being good investors are not the same thing. And so a lot of people get tripped up on that. I was like, you might be a really good founder. Are you a good investor? We don't know. Uh, and then you know, it's very hard if it's if it's a qualitative judgment by the LP. They're like, well, I'm going to talk to you and ask you questions. And then I don't know if I believe you or not. It's a lot easier when we're like, here's my spreadsheet. Take it or leave it. Yeah. So I love it. Yeah. Here, Instead of a pitch deck, here's the spreadsheet. Here's. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a, a specialized thesis? A lot of emerging funds, newer funds have a real 
kind of niche focus or were you more idiosyncratic deals? And here's my track record. So, yes and no. Um, I have three buckets that I spend my time in. One is founders I know really well. So I've, I've been in the Valley for 20 years. I know a lot of people really well. Um, those are easy deals for me to do. Um, they're, they, they tend to be, you know, performance wise, they've, they've done very, very well in my, in my experience. Um, they tend to also be limited in allocation because usually at the point that I've known somebody for a decade, everyone else does too. And so, you know, like mod for Mercury, you know, um, it's a great outcome, you know, super happy that I've, I've been able to invest in that company over the years. Um, I wish I had been able to put in more, but you know, it was, it was, there was a lot of people who wanted to invest with for the mod because the mod's really good. Um, and that's, that's kind of happened over and over again with, in my experience. So I get a certain amount of deployment there, but not as much as I'd like. The second area I spend a bunch of time in is, um, Spaces that I'm really smart in. So it used to be I was an ad tech guy. So I spent a lot of time in ad tech, martech, data. I'm finding my edge there is slowly degrading over time. So I'm not like super smart there anymore. But like it's a space that I can look at stuff and and make real qualitative decisions about the idea. And then the third area that I spend almost all my time in is sort of the there's an interesting space in the market for the first hint of product market fit, which is like, you know, the founder goes, they raise some capital, they start building, they go to market. They iterate the messy middle of trying to figure out how to get something to work, and then they find it. And and really, what happens is there's a crystallization of the value proposition where it goes from being when you talk to a founder and they're like, "Well, we do this," and 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 they're just like they just they just kind of throw a bunch of features and functionality and capabilities at the wall to see what will stick with that customer. And then when they find it, they're like, "I don't know. We do this. Period. Stop. That's what, what we do." And if you don't want to talk to me about that, then great. Let's not waste my time because I'm busy because I have a lot of people who want to talk to me about that. And that value proposition, usually if you find it and you identify it early, it usually precedes the sort of month over month growth rates where the VCs will then show up and you know extend the line and write the big checks. And so if I can find that the point the value proposition is a qualitative before it becomes quantitative, mm. where you really crystallize the value to the customer, then you know I, they always want capital then because they're like, oh my God, I want to go. What's throttle? I mean, they, we got it. And usually the, 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 the VC, the committee run VC process takes another, you know, more data points before the VCs are going to be willing to do the deal. So that's where I like to, that's where I like to find stuff and get involved. Yeah. Interesting. How many LPs did you end up in with in that fund? In, you- in the main fund, there's uh, 55, 60. Um, yeah. All, some fund funds, some multifamily offices, a bunch of individuals. I didn't, but like I said, the fundraise process took three weeks. It was like, so I would literally get introduced to these, these, uh, institutional LPs and, and then I'd be like, oh, by the way, uh, we'll probably be done in like two weeks. And they were like, <laughs> we couldn't do a deal in two months if we wanted to. And I was like, okay, well, see you next time. Um, which is great. I mean, it's, that's, that makes that raising, raising capital from people who are like are closer to the game has been very nice. Interesting. So that was 2021, peak time to do that. Since then, or even starting then, we've seen a ton of new emerging fund managers come out. I, I saw some statistic, I don't know what it is, but it's like hundreds, maybe thousands of new venture funds being formed. Yeah. What adv- and Right now it's 2023, halfway through the year. What advice do you give? Here's where you can do your leveraged, leveraged favors. Uh, what advice do you give to, to emerging managers now in this market? It, what do you tell people you want to pick your brain? Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so, I, it's so hard to raise capital right now from what I understand from the people that I talk to. Um, I mean, like I said, like you can spend your time raising money or you can spend your time deploying money. 
I'd rather spend my time deploying money. So for me and the advice I give all these folks is I'm like, figure out how to get access to capital and, and deploy the capital and don't spend all the time trying to raise the money to, to run the perfect blind pool that is this magical unicorn that we all you know aspire to, but it takes a long time to get there. So, you know, there's a lot of hacks for doing that. For instance, like, you know, a lot of family offices want to do direct investments, but they don't know how to do it. Well, you can work with them to help them do that via SPVs um, where, you know, you find a deal and, you know, you bring it in and they, they look at it and evaluate it alongside you. And, you know, then you get carry on that. Um, you know, there's obviously things like AngelList. Um, there's, there's all these, these um, VC funds that are always looking for good, high quality deals. So, you know, you can bring them a deal. And then if they do the deal, they'll give you some economics on it. There's a lot of ways to hack the system. And I think I always recommend that, that that's the better path than slogging it out, trying to raise in a market like this, because it's really hard. Yeah, we uh, here's my little tiny product plug. We, we launched fundingstack.com for any emerging VCs. Check it out. But we, we're already getting some pretty good numbers on there, but it's everyone's struggling. Like everyone's really having a hard time right now. Yeah. And one of the questions that keeps coming up is, should I be going after family offices, like a lot of, a lot of attention and excitement around going after family offices. I think there's a perception that that's maybe an easier, uh, LP market to crack. <laughs> um, yeah. Any thoughts just on like kind of where to point your energies? I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is find good deals first, figure out how to get them funded. Yeah. But in, in terms of like, if you have a certain number of hours per day to pursue LPs, what type of LP would you recommend people? Concentrated. I mean, honestly, like in my experience, it's, it, it's very relationship driven. So it just takes time to do that. And so if you think about it transactionally, like, hey, I want to go find the right LP and I go talk to them and they're going to give me a check. I, I think you're going to be very disappointed um, unless you have a track record or you're, you know, a super duper expert in a space that everyone's fired up about. So you're an AI expert and there's a reason why they all want to get exposure to the AI space and like you can get them that way. But I, I think I think approaching it transactionally, especially in a market like this, is you're it's going to be really frustrating and painful. I mean, the, like for, for instance, the family offices, right? Yeah, yeah, they do write checks, but a lot of them love to just pick your mind. They're like super excited to get you to come in and tell them all about what you're seeing in the market. And, mm. and then you're like, thank you for that free hour consulting. Bye. <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, you can spend a lot of time going down a lot of dark blind alleys. Um, so yeah, yeah I, 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 I'm, I'm all about trying to make that fundraise process as easy as possible and, and relationships really help that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I guess one could argue, you know, you've got to start building those relationships in advance yeah, so, anyway. So which, which relationship should you start to build? And regardless of what form that takes, I guess. I don't know. I mean, you've you've got some good, uh, like industry ventures, co investors you've done deals with that are also LPs, which is nice and convenient. <laughs> yeah, that helps yeah. a lot. Yeah, that val- I mean, that's you know, you want you want to find somebody who helps validate you as much as possible, but um, you know, it's a process. Sure, there's, there's no easy answers. No easy answers. Do you? I mean, you have a, a unique fund, and and the whole story kind of echoes that. But do you? Do you like the, I feel like there's a lot of these very niche, niche focus, whether it's applied AI, that's, I see a lot of those right now, or um, is that maybe a way to kind of get the attention of, of LPs a little bit more and have something really specific and uh, carve off, build a brand in that space? I I don't think of other hacks to kind of get into the venture world. (laughs) Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, look, if, if like, the great thing about applied AI is there's the, the there's just not a lot of people who are smart in it. Almost nobody is. Everyone's trying to figure it out. So, you know, if you jump into it and spend all your time there now, then you can probably become one of the smartest people pretty rapidly if you wanted to go, you know, become an expert in that. And, you know, you see a lot of people with their Twitter threads around AI and who are, who are writing thought papers and who are out building landscape maps and like content marketing effectively. So there's a lot of ways to like go after that. So you see the same thing in climate, for instance, like climate is an interesting space that people are excited about. Um, yeah, so there's there's a strategy there. Um, I, you know, it's at the end of the day, though, what I always tell people is I'm like, just do what gets you excited that you enjoy doing because you're going to be doing it for a long time before you make any money. And so this is, this is a, you know, I'm eight years into it and I, 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 I can easily see another decade in front of me. And, you know, so it's like, okay, you better like this job. You better like the work you do. And so I would, I always subordinate the tactics that I use to the, to the, to the things I get joy out of. Um, and people is where I get my joy, meeting people, talking to people, ideas about how to communicate. I enjoy the process of trying to figure out how to articulate ideas, you know, understanding complex things like i enjoy the the learning process that's where i spend all my time and it seems to work okay you can either punt on this question or answer it any way you want but are you already thinking about the next fund is it going to be a big fund i mean it, it it seems like there's a common pattern right you you raise a 30 million dollar fund 50 million dollar fund and the next one's 100 then it's 250 and 750 or do you yeah. see that in your future yeah or, or the other way like you can look at the homebrew guys and maybe they went the opposite direction and they just started saying deploying their own capital. And, you know, there, um, you know, you get 100% of the gains and uh, you're, you spend this probably less time and energy at it because you don't have to deal with LPs. And, um, you know, it's a lot easier. The, the thing, the, the sort of ceiling that I see that's, that's, that I haven't decided if I want to try to, to break through is sort of like once you start to compete directly with the, with the big VC firms, that becomes, there's a lot of adverse selection there because now you spend the time to get to a yes in your own head on a deal and then you win it some fraction of the time. Whereas now I win almost every deal I want to do because I'm kind of in front of them and it's earlier. And it's for me, it's more about finding the deals that I want to do. Winning the deals is, tends to be pretty straightforward. And so like, as you start to deploy more capital, then it becomes much more competitive from that perspective. And the question then is, do you, do you want to do that? And also building a firm, you know, do you, do you want to hire and manage a bunch of people? I, I don't know. We'll figure that out when time comes. Well, yeah. right, right now, it's like we got to, there's enough work to be done for the next few years. So, yeah. I like it. I'll let you go. I know you're busy. Uh, one one more question, maybe two. Any other tips? You know, part of what I'm hearing as an underlying thread is you've been able to hustle good deals and you've been able to build on that in many ways. What are other tips for someone new, maybe even new to Silicon Valley or, or maybe someone, you know, new to, to this world that, uh, how do you get good deal flow? How do you insert yourself into that where you're playing poker with the Reddit and Airbnb guys? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said before, I, honestly, like the strategy is just do leverage favors. Like if you're out there doing favors for people where it doesn't cost you much, you're sending an email, you know, you're you're making a connection, you're giving them some advice, you're doing something that's super valuable to them, but doesn't cost you a lot of time. You can pay it forward all day long and you don't feel like you're you're getting taken advantage of. And that, at least in my experience, has come back in spades for me in terms of access to deal flow and getting to be in the right rooms. Because if you're somebody who's always useful, then 
everybody's going to want you in the room. Like everyone's going to be excited because they're like, hey, we get we get her in the room and she's going to provide a lot of value to all of us. Like, let's invite her to more things. Um, so I'm I'm always trying to figure out how to do that. That's you know, and it's it's a it's a it's a process, it's a journey, but yeah, I'm enjoying it. I like that. Okay, very last question. I promise. <laughs> what what advice would you give your younger self going back whatever eight years, or what is other advice that you give you know newer investors, fund managers that we haven't covered? I mean, I don't know. It's a good question. Um, Somehow get the... You know, like one, one experience I had was I looked at Bitcoin and it was like 50 cents. And I was like, this shit will never work. And, and in reality, that was obviously factually incorrect. And then also the decision-making process was, was wrong. Because what I should have said is, what is the probability that this is going to work? Um, let's let's call it 1%. If it works, how big will it be? It'll be really big. So, you know, I should have been like, okay, this is this is this is unlikely, but potentially huge. And and I think that that lesson is for me, it's about risk. And it was kind of the, the first thought that came to mind was that like I would tell my younger self that like you should look at risk and embrace the big risks at a young age because oftentimes that's where the most interesting stuff happens. Like everybody sort of looks at the stuff that is going to work for sure. Everybody's on the NVIDIA trade right now. It's going to work, obviously. Nobody's overdoing something weird. And so like the more you can gravitate away from where everybody else is to the places that are weird and uncertain and risky. And like, like that's, that's where you're going to find the most interesting stuff. Um, and so, you know, I was, of all the mistakes I've made in my career, uh, the ones I regret tend to be the ones where I I, I dismissed something too quickly um, as opposed to being thoughtful. Good. Excellent. All right. Well, if people want to learn more, get in touch with you. Are you, I see on your website, you have like submit a pitch or something that goes to an email. Do those actually go anywhere? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I get a lot of emails. Um, I don't respond to the ones that I don't know the person unless I, but every now and then I'll fund one. I've done, I've funded a couple that I've gotten randomly. Um, so yeah, my, I, my email is shared. If you go to my Twitter, Zach Coleus, that's a great way to engage. Um, uh, but also I have my user manual in there and uh, the, that, that actually explains how to work with me. Cause I'm, I'm kind of a weirdo sometimes. And I highly recommend everyone read that before they try to engage with me. Um, yeah. I like that. So, okay. So go to, Colius.bc um, is the website, but then really the Twitter is where to find out, you know, how to, how to, your operating manual, how to get in front of you and all that good stuff. People want I like to. every other VC on there every day. So if you need to find me, Twitter is a good place. Cool. Awesome. Zach, thanks so much. Good to see you again. Exciting to hear the whole journey and tale here. I've kind of seen you out and about. I've seen you build your career, but it's fun to hear the actual story from the horse's mouth. So. <laughs> Great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Good stuff. All right. Thank you. We'll catch you after your, your next fun. How about that? <laughs> All right. Over now. Bye. Bye.